Tonight we'll just have a open question-answer discussion. Is anything still on your mind? Well, it's uh, helpful that you notice that that's happening because calm is a factor of enlightenment, so it's a wholesome state, but it's still just another condition arising. And so I really want to reflect on the fact that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as being the bottom line of the practice. And so you can do a few things at that time. One is to arouse the effort to note it. Uh, and whether you actually use the mental note or not of calm, calm. Uh, but to notice and bring some investigation to that state itself. You know, so it's really seeing, okay, well, what is the experience that I'm calling calm? Right, instead of just kind of sinking into it. And so there's an investigation of it. So just that will arouse some energy. You might also, if you find yourself still getting stuck in it, uh, just attend to some more objects. You know, at that time, is the breath still, you're aware of the breath? Okay, so if the breath is not predominant, you could, if the investigation of the calm itself is not enough to really bring some alertness to the mind, you could uh, go to sitting and touching, which is always there. You know, and just aware of the sitting posture in whatever way you're feeling it, and go to some touch points, sitting, touching, 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 sitting, calm. You know, so you're including it in it, but you're not uh, getting lost in it. Yeah. It's interesting that at certain stages of insight, um, different of the factors of enlightenment become very strong. You know, calm among them, concentration, mindfulness. So the, the mind at that time is very, uh, very bright. But at this particular stage, all of these factors of enlightenment are called corruptions of insight, precisely because of the liability of getting attached to them. And it's interesting that the next stage in the unfolding path is called discerning what is the path and what is not the path. And, and so it's, it's a very telling uh, name, because it's we get to the point of realizing that the path is not just abiding in these states. The path is to see the arising and passing of them all. You know, and that's what keeps the practice moving forward. So the question is whether the, to, to say something about the process of identification itself as being the object. Uh, I, it can be, and I, it should be. Uh, and one way to do that uh, that I found really helpful is uh, to feel that 
to feel the contraction that takes place. And sometimes we really feel it in the body, and sometimes we might feel it more as a contraction of mind, but it's a narrowing, you know, from being in the flow of changing experience, just moment after moment. And we don't have to do anything for things to change. Things are changing in their nature. This, you know, as I said in some of the interviews, change is like gravity. It's just there. You know? And so it's nothing we create and nothing we have to uh, produce. So often, when, when we're mindful and aware, we're just in the flow of changing phenomena. Whenever we're identified with anything, it can be identified lost in a thought, it can be identified with a reaction, you know, of liking or disliking, it can be identified with a judgment, a comment, you know, it can be so many things. As soon as we're identified with something that's arising, passing in the flow, you can feel that it's like a going along, easeful, easeful, <laughs> you know, you can just feel the kind of clenching, clutching. And so to notice that, you know, and to, to be aware of that, and often in the noticing of it, simply in the noticing of it, often there's the release. Uh, sometimes we are aware of the identification just after it releases. We're not actually aware of it in the moment. But you've probably had the experience at times and it can be with very subtle, subtle objects, but often I'll be sitting you know, and just feeling the breath, just very simple and everything. Mind feels calm and spacious and open, just feeling the breath. And then all of a sudden, there'll be a sudden release of something I didn't even know I was holding. You know, and it could be a slight wanting you know, or a holding to calm. You know, it could be anything, but we're not aware of it until there's that moment of relaxing further. So it's good to, to notice that. So I don't know if that's the kind of thing you had in mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, that, that certainly can be the identification with knowing, and that's uh, much more subtle, you know, to, to see that. Uh, I think we've talked about, and I've probably mentioned it in the hall as well, it's, I'll just back up a minute, the, the identification with the knowing, we can both see it and cut through that in a variety of ways. So one of the ways is something I've mentioned, that that reframing in the passive voice of things being known. You know, because usually just the way we language things, it's in the active voice where there's a subject and an object. You know, and so I'm knowing a sound, a sight, a thought. And so just in our language, which influences the way we experience things, we're continually positing a subject, an I, and so that's our frame. You know, that, that's the conventional frame. By reframing it in the passive voice, which really changed my practice when I saw that, and I first, I first did it and was very obvious in the walking, you know, because the movement of the step is just so clear, it's such a clear object. And then just to move, and reframing is just, the movement is being known. And it's quite miraculous because there's nobody doing anything. It's like there's no effort. It's completely spontaneous. It's totally exact. It's not a moment before, not a moment after. It's just being known. And reframing in that way begins to weaken this sense of an observer because there's no subject in that. You know, and then, you know, as I mentioned, you can, you can explore even further. 
once you just get easeful in that, you can go through the whole day. It becomes a very seamless, easeful way of moving through the day. Just moment after moment, a movement is being known, a sound is being known, a thought is being known. It's all just happening by itself. So when you you just get comfortable with that framework, then you can stir things up a bit by asking the question, known by what? So then that really becomes an investigation of the nature of awareness. Okay, it's being known. You know, we're not unconscious. <laughs> Things are being known all the time. Known by what? And so this isn't, a, this isn't a thought process. This isn't a philosophic discussion. It's like we are right in the experience of things being known. That's, that's what's happening. And so when we ask that question, we're actually directing the attention to the experience. You know, known by what? <laughs> There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is there. And so you start playing, you know, with just this mystery of awareness. So this is one way. But it's a slow, you know, it's a gradual process because the conditioning of being the subject is so strong. But that reframing in language has really helped me. The other way that we begin to break the identification, which is very classic, is in the unfolding of insights. One of of the insights sort of toward the beginning of the path. This is, not, this is not an advanced thing particularly, but there is the insight that in every moment there is knowing and an object. You know, so there's an in-breath and a knowing, there's an out-breath and a knowing, there's a movement and a knowing. And moment after moment, there's, there's this dual process happening. Knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. And you can't separate them. So it's not like you can put the knowing over here and the object here. They're inseparable, but they can be distinguished. So just as an example of that, you know, if you look at this, you see both color and form, right? So it's two different aspects. The form, the shape, is not the color. And the color is not the shape. But you can't separate the shape from the color. Right? The, <laughs> the form is, in, is a color, and the color is in a form. And so that just gives a sense of how something can be distinguishable, but inseparable. And so that's how knowing an object is happening moment after moment. So this is... <laughs> don't make this complicated because this is just the simplicity of how we experience things, right? In any moment, there are these two things. And so this is not, this is simple. So it's just paying attention to that. And as we pay attention to it, we see more and more clearly the arising and passing of this knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. This stage of insight, it also has an interesting name. It's called purification of view. Because when we really see this clearly, that all there is in Pali you know, is nama rupa. There's no I, there's no mind. All that's happening is this process of nama rupa, mind, knowing an object of mentality and physicality. So when we see that, that also cuts through the identification. So it's, it's all of this.
So, the, did you hear that in the back? So the, the question, the comment was just, sometimes when the mind is pretty quiet, there's still a kind of subtle pulsing of a sense of I, even though there's, there's not anything uh, apparent that's, you know, I, 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 but just a, a reference point. Yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, this is a little tricky <laughs> because I think sometimes people have the idea that when there's no, when we're free of the sense of self, kind of all boundaries disappear. You know, and there's kind of just a merging into. I don't think, I think even the Buddha, you know, as he was walking down the road and if an elephant was coming toward him, he'd probably step out of the way <laughs> or he'd beam the elephant and the elephant would step out of the way, <laughs> but somebody, one of them would step out of the way, <laughs> you know, and so, yeah, I, I would let go of that idea that, if, that the feeling of separation means Necessarily, you know that there's the sense of I. This there still might be the sense of I from for you know, from other causes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's the danger, and this is just. I have to. This is just my two cents. <laughs> okay. I think it's the danger of the term non-duality. You know, when people hold non-duality up as sort of the goal, it can imply something like that. And there's one sutta which, I, I think it's a Mahayana sutta, and it's just a short one, which is just a, this will just be a paraphrase, but I really liked it. Basically, the sutta said, letting go of duality, letting go of non-duality. <laughs> Let, letting go of it all. And the Buddha utters his lion's roar. And I think that's an important, because I feel that sometimes in meditative circles, kind of there's a making something of non-duality then with a lot of connotations and... Yeah. So just to be without experience? Yeah, which is just another, exp just another experience, yeah. which is known. Try to be less, not more. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think that's particularly helpful. It's sort of the, the flip side or another way of expressing what Trungpa Rinpoche, you know, so brilliantly called spiritual materialism. And it's so, this is so easy to do. You know, when, when we're on a, a spiritual path or meditative path, it's like often there's a giving up of what we think of as a grosser sense of self, but we're just recreating a sense of self with meditative experiences, you know, and so, and all kinds of things, you know, people, people get this pride about whatever, you know, different experiences. Uh, 
which really misses the point. Right? Uh, but it's very seductive. It's extremely seductive, which is why it's pointed out so often. Uh, and so that, that saying of Ramana Maharshi is just like a reminder. It's not trying to be more of anything. It's trying to be less. <laughs> less, 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 less. <laughs> I mean, the, the power of the Buddhist teaching for me is that it just is so uncompromisingly radical. You know, it's, there's not like a little corner <laughs> that one can back into and, you know, well, <laughs> there's no corner. You know, it's like, Nothing is to be clung to. There's some wonderful lines from T.S. Eliot from the Four Quartets. Uh, he says, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And I love that, costing not less than everything. You know, so there's not, there's not like some little place we can hold on to and say, yeah, this is... This is me, you know, a very refined place. It's like it's really letting go of that identification with everything, anything, you know, and then the freedom of it. Because anything that we identify with, anything at all, is still just one of the aggregates, you know, arising and passing. There's nothing stable, there's nothing reliable about it, even you know, refined meditative states. It's still just conditioned phenomena. And so it's, to really see it's letting go of, letting go of identification, you know, with anything at all. And so it becomes interesting then, and I think this is really where we can bring a great interest to our practice here on retreat or out in the world, is just to watch, you know, what are our patterns of identification? Where, where do we identify? Because we all do, you know, until we're fully enlightened. That's going to be there. You know, so to really look and investigate, okay, what do we get caught in? Just as a as a framework for that investigation, the Buddha gave a you know, an outline of places where we, where we habitually do get attached. And the obvious one, of course, is to sense pleasures, you know, and desire for sense pleasures. So that's common and worth looking at. Uh, but another area which he spoke of a lot, which often goes unnoticed, uh, he said, is attachment to views and opinions. And so especially, not here... I mean, here you might have them in the silence of your own mind, <laughs> but when you're out in the world and in conversation and in interaction, a huge amount of suffering in the world, both globally, internationally, and in the just nature of our intimate relationships, so much of the suffering comes from attachment to viewpoints. You know, to viewpoints. Yeah, to, and opinions. You know, we see things a certain way, we have an opinion, we get very attached. The Zen master Bankai had a wonderful line. He said, don't side with yourself. <laughs> you know, but, but we're always siding with ourselves. <laughs> So to really look at this, to, you know, to, to bring that investigation in our lives to see. And often we can do it, we may forget to do it in the ordinary course of things, but one thing that can remind us to do it is when we get, when we get involved or 
we're in a situation of interpersonal suffering, you know, interpersonal conflict. Just to take a look to see, okay, is at least part of this because I'm attached to my way of seeing things. You know, so it's, it's very freeing to look at that. The third attachment is that the Buddha talked of is not, doesn't seem to be so relevant you know, in our culture. But uh, he talked about attachment to rites and rituals you know, as being a vehicle for awakening. Um, so I don't know, maybe some of you are, but you can just keep that in mind. Uh, and then the, the fourth attachment, of which we've talked a lot about, is the attachment to the view of self. Uh, so it's just, you know, we can bring that framework and to look to see in our lives you know, where is the identification? Where is the attachment? Uh, because they come up a lot in the course of a day. If you could share something about Dipama relation, mm. impact if you were what you learned. Mm. So the question was just if I could say something about Dipama and how she influenced me. Probably more than anybody else, than any of my teachers, uh, I think she was my greatest inspiration. Just and I think it was a combination, both of the experience of the quality of her mind, you know, because there was just such. It was like a vast emptiness suffused with metta. So it was great to be with her. <laughs> it was, uh, some, it, often we'd visit her in Calcutta. You know, and she, li- I mean, she was very poor. You know, and she lived just in two small rooms with her daughter and then later on with her grandson in these two small rooms and you know, fourth, fifth story walk up. Uh, poor conditions. Uh, but you walked into her room, and it was just like walking into a field of light. And in Indian fashion, you know, we'd greet her and bow, and she'd kind of, you know, give her blessing. She'd run her hands over your head and shoulders, and all, and like it was just a rain of <laughs> a rain of bliss, you know. And so it was that very direct experience, combined with all the stories Munindra told about her. <laughs> Because Manindra, who was my first teacher, was her teacher, you know, and trained her both in Vipassana and in Samadhi, and then in all the different psychic powers she had. So she, she never spoke of that, but he spoke of it. So all of this was also, you know, in our mind, knowing that she had these amazing, amazing abilities. And so it's just this appreciation of the the vastness and the power of the mind manifest with this emptiness and the love. And so she's a pretty extraordinary being. Uh, in the book on Deepama, I think at the very end there's a picture of me in her. It's like, <laughs> I'm up here and she's down here, but her mind is a lot bigger than mine. <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a Really inspiring being. Actually, there's a book coming out on his life. Oh. Some, some, it, it should be out. Do you know when it's out? Soon. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, he he was he was the Unguru. When I first went to India and I was looking for a teacher, I, I went around to different ashrams and that I just heard about. You know, I didn't. I ended up in Bodhgaya and Manindra was there. And just as soon as he explained the practice, I mean, I knew it just made so much sense. You know, just sit down and observe, and there was nothing to join and no. It just was 
as you know, it's just complete common sense. You know, we just, if we want to understand ourselves, we sit down and watch what's happening. Uh, but he was very quirky. You know, he wasn't at all kind of the picture of this, you know, guru, you know, majestic. He, he was this little guy, very speedy. You know, he'd be running around. He'd be bargaining in the bazaar for five cents worth of peanuts. <laughs> you know, and so one time, I was with him in the bazaar, and I said, Muninja, you know, what are you doing? You, you're hassling this poor peanut vendor. <laughs> and he said, the path of the Dharma is to be simple, not a simpleton. <laughs> you know, and, but what was, what was really wonderful about him, and I, I'm, I'm just so grateful uh, that he was my first teacher, because he had a very, very open mind about different practices, you know, and he just appreciated all the different ways of practicing. So there was never any sense of kind of a sectarian viewpoint, you know, one way being the best, or, and it was just such a, I, I feel so grateful that that was the foundation because then it just was possible to study with different teachers and there was, there was never any feeling of, you know, there's only one way to do this. Uh, he himself, after he had studied with Mahasi Saidao, who was his teacher, uh, he then went around Burma. He said he studied, uh, I don't know, some large number, 40 or 50 different techniques of Vipassana. You know, so there are many ways, there are many methods uh, to practice. Uh, and then he was also, and this is, he was tremendously curious. I mean, he had, we once took him to the Air and Space Museum in Washington. He had to see and read every, ex Every exhibit in that museum, I and the friends who went with it, we were exhausted. I lay down on one of the couches. <laughs> I mean, he just spent hours, you know, totally concentrated and absorbed. On, but he also brought that quality to his study of the Dhamma. And he said after he had done his meditation practice, he wanted to do the study aspect because he didn't want to take other people's word for what the Buddha said. He wanted to, so he spent, I think, I think it was six years, you know, in intensive study. He said it would be all day and a good part of the night, every day. And so he studied, you know, all of the suttas and the Vinaya and the Abhidhamma. So he was this amazing scholar, you know, as well as a meditation master. So yeah, here we go. <coughs> but very quirky. <laughs> but you may, when the book comes out, it might be might be fun to read it. Uh, one of his students, uh, her name is Mirka Nas Mirka Knaster. One of the things that Manindra said very often, he said it so often that it was just, it made a deep neuronic pathway in my brain. It, it just, I don't know, thousands of times he would say, be simple and easy. Just be simple and easy about things. And it was such a good teaching, you know, because we just tend to complicate things so much in our meditation, in our lives. And he would just say, just be simple and easy. Take things as they come. Be aware of what's happening. You know? And when we are simple and easy about things, our life becomes simple and easy. So I pass that on. You know, it's, it was really good advice. Because the practice is very simple. It's being aware of what's arising in the moment and not holding on. 
what could be simpler? But he also said something else. <laughs> he said, it's simple but not easy. <laughs> Yeah, because of our conditioning. One of, the, one of the little tools that I've used in the line of being simple and easy, and I said, it was especially earlier on in my practice when I'd be going through just different kinds of difficulties, and you know, those times when it just feels like you're walking through sludge, and, you know, where it's, it's just where it doesn't feel easy. Just a very simple question, which helped me a lot during those times. Whenever I would feel that I was in a place of struggle, I would just sit back and ask myself the question, what's happening? Because what does struggle mean? Struggle means that something is arising that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So struggle always means something is going on that we're not open to, that we're not accepting, but often we're not seeing it. And so just letting this feeling of struggle be the feedback, that's like the mindfulness bell, to remind one, okay, what's happening? And it's that move, it's like that stepping back, opening up the field. And it's very interesting when I would do that, often I would feel, oh, there's some discomfort in the body that I had been trying to ignore, you know, not created the tension. Sometimes I'd sit back and what's happening? Oh, there's just a flood of thoughts, you know, which unknowingly I had not opened to and I was trying to fight with them or battle with them. Oh, flood of thoughts, okay, that's what's happening. So it gets very simple and easy when we do that. You know, it's just opening, okay, what's the present experience? Something else that's, I think, helpful to remember about this unfolding journey is that the path is not like a straight line going up to Nibbana. It's more like a sine curve. You know, there are lots of ups and downs, but the slope of the curve is going up. Right? But at any one time, you know, we're up, we're down. We're... So it's just to know that. It's just not to, not to be discouraged. I had an experience of that in the physical world one time. I was, I was on the island of Kauai in Hawaii. And there's a hike, uh, it's called the Nepali Coast, beautiful hike uh, along the coast. It's an 11 mile walk into a remote valley. And the hike is just up and down. And on top, you have this expansive view, you know, of the coastline and the ocean and the cliffs. and it's, Beautiful. And then you go down and you're kind of in a, in a dark, dank kind of rainforest, you know, and it's kind of very closed in. And then you go up and the view and then down. And there's 11 miles of this, so it's a very, it's quite an arduous hike. So even though there are all these ups and downs, all the time it's going forward. But if we focus just, oh, great view, oh, you know, all closed in, we can forget that there's actually movement happening. You know, there's an unfolding path here. So it's just helpful to keep that in mind so one doesn't get either judgmental or reactive and just, it's just to be with it, however it is.
I did meet him. Yeah. He did. I think he impressed everybody. <laughs> I, I, I did. I just had one meeting with him. It, uh, uh, he, he, he was a very impressive. He he was the image of a guru. <laughs> I mean, he's a very powerful presence, but in, in the one interaction, I, I had uh, been traveling in India and went to Sikkim, and his monastery, his home monastery, uh, was in Rumtek in Sikkim. Uh, he actually visited IMS once, yeah, uh, which was, actually, so, actually I met him twice. Uh, but what was so impressive about him, and it's the same feeling one gets uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, just in talking to him, it felt like when you were with him, as with the Dalai Lama, and it just you feel like you're the most important person in the world, that you're the only one that matters at that point. Their attention is so complete and so, you know, so it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to be on the receiving end of that and, and to actually feel what's possible. The Dalai Lama has, has a wonderful line, he says, and he describes this as one of his practices. He says, I try to, something like this, but I, I try to be with everyone I meet as an old friend, yeah, it's just, wouldn't it be great <laughs> to, like, everyone we're with, you know, we're not, so we're, we let go of our judgmental mind and our commenting mind, just everybody we meet, it's as if an old friend, so it's a reminder, you know, of just the practice of that open-heartedness and metta, and then to see when we don't. You know, just having that as a reference point, not, not to berate ourselves for not living up to it all the time, but just holding it as, you know, a possibility or a reference point, then it actually makes us more aware when we're not quite in that space. You know, And the, the beauty of the Dharma, as you all know, it's just, it's not just about sitting on our cushion, although, you know, so much of value comes from this, but it's about our life. It's just about understanding our life and how we live and, you know, applying this in just in everything we do. My response will come from my limited understanding of Abhidhamma. Because if you wanted a really comprehensive understanding of that question from a Buddhist perspective, the Abhidhamma explains it in huge detail. So this is just kind of a sliver of that. Uh, that it's the mental factor of intention or volition. In Pali, it's jetana, which is a crucial factor of mind. It, it's a common factor, which means it's arising in every moment. And it has the function to organize all the other factors to a particular end. You know, so 
it has that organizing function. Yeah, that that is that is its nature, uh, and so I th I think that's really the piece. What's interesting about that factor, and the Buddha talked of, it's precisely that factor of volition or intention on this moment-to-moment -moment level, you know, which is directly organizing the mind around a particular object, that's the factor that contains the karmic energy. You know, so he said, the Buddha said, jetana, volition, is karma. You know? And so jetana, that factor itself, is ethically neutral. You know, it just has this, this organizing or volitional quality. So then the particular karmic fruit depends upon the other factors that are associated with it. So volition can be influenced by greed, it can be influenced by compassion. But this would be very interesting to do in your practice, and this is quite subtle. But to, to just practice noticing or exploring the experience of volition. And we can talk about it as a concept and, you know, it makes sense. But what's our actual felt experience of willing something to happen? You know, it's that moment of <laughs> where we're actually That's okay. I, I, you, to see it at any point is good. <laughs> you know. An intention, because it's arising in every moment, we miss most of them. But you can practice really looking at it carefully where it's very predominant. That is, for example, just in the initiation of a physical movement. So that's, that's an easy, uh, relatively easy place to observe it. You know, before you move, something initiates the movement. At one time I was, I was in India practicing, and I was, just, I was just interested in, okay, well, what is this? And I remember standing, it was in, up in the mountains, I was just standing on the road, I had been doing some walking, okay, what's going to make me move? Yeah, and I could kind of see the thought come and go, but nothing happened. Thought come and go, nothing happened. I think I stood there for half an hour, you know, just waiting to see, well, what's going to actually <laughs> get me moving? I think it was probably either boredom or something which then <laughs> gave power to the volition. But it's just interesting to explore. Yeah. So with physical movement, it's, it's a place where we can see it easily, but it takes on much more, it has much more consequence when in picking up the volition with other kind of actions that we undertake in the world. You know, and you know, there's, a, there's a Tibetan teaching that's very powerful, where it says, uh, everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's like, you could, you, in one way, you could see the whole practice is about that. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. So every time we act, every time we speak, everything we do, what's the motivation? You know, but how often do we really look at that? Probably not that often. You know, we, we just assume that we're basically good people and that our motivations are basically good. You know, I think we live our lives with that kind of casual attention to them. But... One of the things I'm 
sure you've seen in your practice here, and we can see a lot in our lives, is that most of us anyway are not saints. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of stuff in there that's you know, not wholesome, that's motivated by greed or aversion you know, or delusion. And so to take an interest in that, it's, again, it's not a question of self-judgment. This is, this is just how we all are. You know, and the practice is a process of purification, but that process happens through seeing this. And so it's tremendously uh, powerful just to, to train the mind, to habituate the mind, to at least begin looking at the motivations before we act, before we speak. I have thoughts about almost everything. <laughs> I think one begins to get a sense of the conditioned, selfless nature of volition when you can begin to see what conditions that particular volition. Just, to, just as an example, I mean, it's, it's, it's very simple. Uh, you're walking outside, you know, and it starts to rain, you know, and so you're feeling the rain, and so that's that's the awareness of a physical sensation. Maybe it's, you know, cold, and so you notice the cold, you notice the unpleasantness. The unpleasant, then the unpleasantness conditions some kind of reaction, either aversion to it, and then the aversion would condition, oh, let me do something about it. So it, the aversion would condition the volition, or maybe it's just wisdom, you know, oh, it's raining, time to get an umbrella or go inside. But you can see the cause and effect because of this, because of the cold, this mind state arose. You know, this feeling arose. Because of the feeling, a mind state arose. Because of the mind state, a volition arose. Because of the volition, an action took place. So the volition just becomes one more piece in this chain of cause and effect. So when you can track it that way, then it becomes the impersonality of it becomes really clear, you see. That volition is arising because of that particular uh, condition. And this is another, uh, in the unfolding of insights, one of the stages of insight is the insight into the cause and effect mutuality between mind and body. Because sometimes physical the physical elements condition what arises in the mind. Sometimes what's in the mind conditions the body. You know, there's a thought to move, an intention to move, that's mental, and then a movement, which is physical. And so just to see that everything we call self is just this interplay of, the, of nama rupa, of the mental physical elements, each conditioning you know, the other, in a cause and effect. Uh, so we can, we can observe that even on, even on a relatively simple level.
guess I'll just uh, end uh, first by saying, for those of it's been great being here these last two months. So, uh, really, uh, just today I was just doing interviews. Uh, it's a great role because uh, I just I really learn so much in everything you say. Like, so you come in, you know, and you all have your own particular quirks. <laughs> 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 so it's just this parade of minds, <laughs> but all, all you know, each one has kind of just its own slant on reality, and so it's just you know, it's it just it continually amazes me and broadens, you know, my own understanding of okay, how are things working? Uh, so thank you. <laughs> and. Uh, Kind of a, just a closing note. Uh, you know, the most fundamental framework of the Buddhist teaching that's common to all the schools of Buddhism. And so it's, it's just the most fundamental aspect of his teachings are the Four Noble Truths. You know, suffering and the cause and its end and the path. And for me, it really takes on greater and greater meaning when I see that this can be applied and investigated and explored just in all of our life experiences, we're going along, and if there's some kind of suffering, some kind of unease, some kind of distress, some aspect of dukkha, you know, which comes up a lot in our lives in different ways, instead of it being a problem, it really can become the situation where we explore very immediately these four noble truths. Okay, the dukkha is there, the suffering is there, the distress is there. So we look at it and we say, okay, well, what is its cause? What's, what's going on here that's giving rise to this? You know? And as we see the cause, which is always some kind of craving or attachment or clinging to something, you know, and we practice letting go, you know, we have an immediate experience of these truths. So it's not just kind of an abstract Buddhist f philosophy. We really apply it in our lives, and it's tremendously rich. And at some point, this is really more for people uh, who will be leaving, uh, I think it's very helpful to explore and study and go into some detail into the Eightfold Path. Because, I mean, it's just an amazing teaching. The Buddha said, this is the path that leads to awakening, that leads to enlightenment. And it's very straightforward. But to give attention to, to study, you know, and to really look at the teachings about it and then see, okay, how can I apply each one of these steps on the path? So it just makes the Dharma very alive in our lives uh, because the Eightfold Path is so comprehensive. It just it includes everything that's needed. Um, so I would just encourage you to do that. Let's chant the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.